Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. If you, on your way in, hopefully you grabbed some communion elements here. Uh, if you did not, we will have some, some ushers here before the end of the service go around and, and uh, hand some out, or you could just step out one of these side doors. Uh, there's some at the uh, welcome desk and right in the back there at, in front of the offering box back there. But, uh, so what I want to do is I want to teach on this concept of communion. So my, what, what I want to do over the next few months is we take, receive communion once a month. I, wanna, I want to uh, begin to teach on this because uh, we can just go through this formality. And the danger is, is that we don't really get what we need to get out of the Lord's Supper. And I have been guilty of not, not uh, serving the Lord's Supper, not, not serving communion enough, precisely because I don't want people to take it for granted, which means that we need to teach on it more. And so usually what I want to do is I want to teach on it when we do it, and there's all other things we want to teach on. So we're going to be making some deposits over the next few months about the Lord's Supper. This is such a crucial thing. And so what I really want to focus on this morning is the cup. I want to focus on the blood of Jesus and what that means to us. Uh, if we don't understand the blood, uh, we will, we're forced to come down to a lower level in our Christian life. The blood of Jesus will actually, when you understand the significance of the blood, it'll provide stability and a foundation in your life to go deeper in the things of God. It'll enable you to stand in the onslaught of the enemy. So what we're going to look at, we're going to look at the blood of Jesus. There is an application for heaven, earth, and hell. There's an application where we offer it to God. There's an application where we apply it to our own hearts. And there's an application when we use it against the enemy. And when we really understand, and those are progressive. If you don't understand the significance of the blood before the Father, you'll never be able to use it in your own heart. And it's interesting if you get into the New Testament, there is a, even in the Old Testament, but it, it comes uh, in the New Testament, we begin to see this very, very clearly. There's a difference between the shed blood and the sprinkled blood. Same blood, but different utilization of the blood. The shed blood is for the Father. We offer the shed blood of Christ to the Father, but we sprinkle the blood of Christ on our hearts. And, and this is the phrase that's in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. We, we uh, cleanse our hearts of a guilty, or a, the ESV even calls it an evil conscience. We cleanse our hearts of an evil conscience by the blood. But if you don't understand why it's significant to the Father, if you don't have a grid work for that, you're not going to be able to use it in your own heart. And if you can't use it in your own heart, you are susceptible to the primary weapon of the enemy. The enemy is known as the accuser of the brethren. And the accusation of the enemy, we're made susceptible to accusation if we don't understand how to apply the blood to our heart. And we don't understand how to apply the blood to our heart unless we understand why it's valuable to the Father. So there's a progression. We first understand why heaven values it, then we can 
apply it to our own hearts, and then we can stand against the enemy. Make sense? All right, so, Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and Lord, I ask that your teaching would fall like rain. Lord, I'm asking, God, that the very air would be pregnant with revelation this morning. Lord, that you, the great teacher, would enter the room by your spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and Lord, that you would permeate the atmosphere, and Lord, that people would catch things I'm not saying. Lord, that they would, they would catch what you're saying this morning, and I would simply be an aid in that endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. I really do believe that there's a place in God, uh, a place where there's a spirit of wisdom and revelation that can permeate the atmosphere. I've been in meetings where uh, there's been people that, that carry that on their life, and I would be taking notes on the next thing they were gonna say. And it's not because... I'm a smart guy, but it's because there was such a spirit of wisdom and revelation. They were just giving words to what was already in the air. And I would write things down, and then they would say them, and it freaked me out. But it's, it's a matter of a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So that's why John says, you have not need of a teacher. Do you know that? Because there's an anointing within you that teaches you. Now, I'm here to give words to what God is saying, but every one of us can tap into what the Spirit is saying. So let he who has ears hear what the Spirit would say to the church. The church is. And so, uh, oh man, I just pulled up some notes about something else I want to teach you on someday. Oh man, I've been, I've been, I got immersed in this study the last few days, and I'm going to move it aside. Okay. In handling the word, we want to be able to think biblically. It's not just that we can parrot what the Bible says. I remember when I was in Bible school, there'd be guys that uh, memorized whole passages, and there's some real value to that. But they would say, you know, they would parrot out these verses, and I'd say, what does that mean? And they'd just requote it. But what does that mean? They'd requote it. They had no idea what it said, what it meant. They just knew what it said. And hey, you got to know what it says before you know what it meant. But we don't want to stop there. We want to drill down. And there's, there's some grid work or some, maybe you could say, lenses or paradigms through which we need to, to look at the word. And uh, one of them is this, that in order to really understand any subject in Scripture, you need to understand it through three, if not four, lenses. Okay? Any subject matter. You've got to look at it through three and even four lenses. What I mean by that is this. The first lens is, what was God's original intention? You want to start with where God started. I was asking my 17-year-old my on the way to church this morning, I said, what does this mean, Nathaniel? Origin determines destiny. And he was giving me his, he had some good stuff. Uh, origin determines destiny. And what I was talking to him about is this principle that uh, your, where you begin will determine where you end. You, where, if you're an atheist and you begin as a biological accident, the trajectory of your life will crash very early. Where you will end is you will be a biological accident. But if you began in the heart of God as a creator who created you with great purpose, all of a sudden that changes your destination. 
too much of theology, too much of our cosmology and our theology and our view of everything starts with the fall. A lot of people start their theological uh, thinking from the perspective of the fall. And if you start with the fall, then the ultimate destination is salvation. And God is exalted primarily as the Savior. And although those are great things, you better get that one down or none of the others matter. There's something greater than knowing him as Savior and simply breaking into the new birth and being saved. And so, origins determine destiny. So we wanna, we wanna go back. You could say, oh, let's start back in the garden. Okay, let's start with God as creator. And then the trajectory becomes the, uh, the, uh, the reconciliation of all things. That God's gonna reconcile all things to himself. That's a grand theme. That's an amazing theme. But there's something greater than that. What we wanna do is we wanna start way back in the eternal heart of God that had a dream for many sons. Scripture says that God wanted many sons and daughters. And so that was his original dream. And he put it this way. He said, let us make man in our own image. God dreamt of a human creation, someone he would make that would represent him well. And if we don't understand that, if we reduce everything to salvation, as if the Great Commission is go out and make converts, it's not what it says. It says go out and make disciples. We want to raise up people that look like him, that act like him and think like him and operate like him so that if people wonder, what is God like? You can say, hey, just go check out his children. They're a lot like him. They'll they'll be a great representation, a great representation of who he is. And so any study that we study, anything that we try to grasp, we want to start with original intention. The second lens through which we need to study any subject we really want to know from a biblical perspective is not just what did God originally intend, but how did sin affect it? How did the fall reshape that subject? That's where a lot of people start. We want to start with the original intention, but we've got to take into consideration how did the fall affect it. Then third, how does the cross affect it? What does redemption do to that? What does the redemption of original intention look like? And the fourth lens, I I alluded to a possible fourth lens, and that is the process of redemption because there is the the event and then there's the process of redemption. And when we really want to understand a subject, we want to begin to think through all three to four of those those elements. What, What was God's original intention for mankind? Because unless we understand that, we're never really going to understand redemption, and we're never going to really understand where this thing is going. And I would propose to you, out of that understanding comes a clear understanding of the value of the blood of Jesus. When we don't deal with things at that level, we we end up with a very shallow theology and we don't understand the value of the blood. The reason the blood is valuable to the Father was because of his original intention for man. God says, my word will not return void. And when God said, let us make man in our own image, 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When he said that, I would propose that that image was potential and that making was a process. What do I mean by that? Adam and Eve in the garden were not the finished product. That wasn't the ultimate, and God said, oh, now we've reached the ultimate goal, Adam and Eve in the garden. No, what God was going to do is he stamped his image on these human beings he created, and then through testing and through opportunity, they would unfold the image of God within them, and they would become mature. The New Testament calls that discipleship, or maturity, or moving towards holiness, or uh, perfection, even that word sums up that idea. Perfection is not being flawless, but it's being complete in the New Testament. And so all of these, these ideas have to do with what was God's original intention. Jesus becoming a man, Jesus taking on human flesh, was God stubbornly pursuing that original word. God bound himself to that thing, and he said, I will have a man in my own image. He created Adam and Eve, and they derailed this thing, so what did God do? He said, I'm going to have to take it over and do it myself. And Jesus put on an earth suit, stepped into human history, and fulfilled his own plan to have a man in his own image. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, really the book of Hebrews itself is the book to study if you want to understand the blood. And Hebrews chapter two provides the foundation, really the theological foundation of those lenses we wanna look at. Look at Hebrews chapter two. Uh, look at verse five. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? So the psalmist is, he's quoting Psalm chapter eight, and he's, he's asking, God, what's the deal with humankind? What is your obsession with us? We're so puny down here. We're, we're these weak, puny, uh, you know, making these puny attempts at serving you, and yet, you're obsessed with us. You, you're, you're fixated on humanity. What's the deal with that? You made him a, a little, for a little while lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything under his feet. What he's dealing with here is original intention. Psalm chapter eight frames that first scenario, that first lens. He's saying, What's man, what is man that you are mindful of him, that, that you would visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet. You gave him dominion over, over the earth. That's original intention. And then he veers off of the text in Psalm chapter eight and he introduces the second lens. He says, now putting everything subject to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Halfway, right at the end of verse eight, he introduces the second one. At present, we do not see everything subject to him. Why? Because he's now introducing the effects of the fall. God delegated the earth to man and man abdicated that delegation. Man abdicated that God-given authority and gave it to the enemy through his disobedience. To whom you obey, to him you are a slave. And man essentially gave the deed to the enemy. 
and he became a slave of the enemy. So it goes on. He says, verse nine, now he's gonna introduce the third lens, that of redemption. But we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So God delegated the earth to man, put everything under his feet. Man abdicated that through sin, became a prisoner in his own house, and then Jesus took on human flesh to seize control back and to win back that authority. Now, this passage, uh, we, we've looked at this passage in years past as an outline to understand prayer. And I'm telling you, this, you cannot understand the subject of prayer without looking through these lenses. The authority that you have as a believer, the authority that you have as a human being, the warfare that goes on in the heavenlies, and the necessity of us having to pray, not just understanding why we pray, but why we have to continue to pray. All is within this, this little outline that the writer of Hebrews gives to us. But it also gives us insight into why the blood of Jesus is valuable. God's dream was to have a man made in his own image. That's what God longed for. He, had, he was a father with an only begotten son, but he wanted many begottens. You cannot understand God without understanding his fatherhood. The lens of fatherhood is the ultimate lens to understand who he is. It is the essence of his nature. The triune God is a father and a son and a spirit who have relationship within the Godhead. And it's the pattern by which God operates. And he wants to bring many sons to glory, Romans 8 says. And so you can't understand God. And like we were talking a few weeks ago, if you have father issues that make you stumble over inter, inter, uh, interacting with God as a father, you need to deal with that because that will keep you from your destiny because your ultimate identity is as a son and a daughter. It's not apostleship. It's not uh, a bunch of other ships. It's sonship. Your ultimate identity is, it's not, it's not your assignment or your five-fold title or whatever. It's not whether you're an elder or you're a teacher or whatever. Your ultimate identity is being a son and a daughter of God. But if we can't relate with him as father, we're kept from our identity and therefore our destiny. And if we don't understand that God is ultimate, he's, it's not just that he's savior. He became savior out of necessity because of our, uh, the fall. But he was originally a father wanting many sons. And we need to get back to the beginning and see that the, him being savior was a necessity, but his identity is he's a father. And so the father wanted many sons. But Adam and Eve... So what, you can put it this way. What God's desire was is he was going to call out the image, the potential within them. God breathed into Adam and Eve the breath. The Hebrew is the breath of lives, plural. There was the natural life. 
the suke, the soul, and then there was the higher life, that the, the life of the spirit, that breath of life, so they became living souls with living spirits that could interact with their creator, their father. When God told them, the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die, there was a twofold death that came. There was their physical death, this slow expiration that began to set in, but there was the immediate death of their spirit. Their spirit died and they, they were cut off from that communication and that relationship with God. And God, what God's plan was, and in this passage in Hebrews, it says, well, let's read it here. See, uh, look at Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and through whom everything exists, in bringing many sons to glory, that's what we're talking about. Let me read it again, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, speaking of Jesus, for whom and by whom everything exists, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word founder is an interesting word. It's translated captain of their salvation, the author of their salvation. The NAS, the New American Standard Translation, translates that word the pioneer of their salvation. That's the one I prefer. I like the picture of that. Because what God did is God created them with potential. The image of God was stamped upon their nature. But Adam and Eve were not the finished product. So how was God going to draw this nature out of them and unfold them so they could become all that God intended? He was going to do it through choices. That's why he put the forbidden fruit that hung on the tree in the middle of the garden. He didn't put it on the edge of the garden. He didn't put it where it was inaccessible. He didn't put razor wire around it and you know angels with AK-47s. He put it right smack dab in the middle of the garden so that they could access it. And he said, don't eat of it. You're gonna have to trust me. Because only by trusting him, only through testing can you grow. I know this is not a good news sermon yet. It's gonna get good, okay? The reason the author says it was fitting that he for whom and through whom everything exists should be made perfect through suffering, the reason it was fitting that he is made perfect through suffering, because that's how you're going to be perfected. That's what he's saying. I mean, it's all over the word. Romans chapter 5. Suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. In that passage, it's framed as character. James chapter 1, think it not strange, my brothers, when you go through trials of many kind. For if you patiently endure, you will become mature, not lacking anything. And where Romans says character, James says maturity. Hebrews chapter 12, think it not strange, brother, or, uh, when you go through trials, uh, the Lord disciplines those he loves and uh, disciplines everybody he treats as a son, endure hardship as discipline, therefore you may be sharers in his holiness. Do you see an equation here? You see a pattern throughout scripture? Romans 5, suffering, character, James, trials, maturity, Hebrews 12, hardship, Holiness, they're saying the same thing, different terminology. I know, there's, there's no shouting going on in here this morning. 
But what we need to do is we need to have a lens for this because what God is doing is he's inviting us to come higher. He's saying, I've got so much more for you. You don't realize what I put in you as potential that I want to bring out of you as character, holiness, and maturity. And so if we begin to understand that, then when we go through these trials, we cooperate with him. This is, this is not, it's not that God is a killjoy. He's not saying, well, if you're going to, you know, a lot of us see God as this demented little boy up, you know, we're like an insect and he's pulling our wings up. I wonder if they can fly without this one. <laughs> now try, you know. <laughs> and there, people have that view of God. That's not God. He's a good father. He's got good things for you. But because he's a good father, he will not allow you to step into things before you can handle them. The enemy is just the opposite. He loves to get you promoted beyond your maturity and watch you crash and burn. He loves to give you under, knowledge of things that you can't yet handle. You think about how the, the world operates trying to expose children to things they don't have the capacity, emotional capacity to handle, and it shipwrecks them. But a good father says, no, not my children, not on my watch. I'm gonna protect my, God's the same way. I was talking to a, an old friend, I got, got a guy reached out to me, hadn't talked to him in years, good friend of mine from Teen Challenge, and we just were visiting on the phone and got to talking about this principle. I remember sitting with some guys in Teen Challenge one time, and uh, I was telling them that principle, no pain, no gain. We just saw it in scripture. That's scriptural. No pain, no gain. But as I'm telling them that, the Lord spoke to me. And he told me to tell them this. There's a flip side that's just as true. No gain, no pain. God is a good father. He is only, uh, he is only willing to introduce you to the pain, the max. The, the, the minimum pain necessary to get you where you need to go. Now, that's not to say we can't bring it on ourselves. Believe me, I've been through enough trials. I've been through hardship uh, trials and, you know, hardship, those, those kind of things in my life uh, that I brought on myself. Had nothing to do with God. Now, God's very practical. He'll still use that. He'll redeem it. Thank you, Jesus. But God will only allow the suffering that is absolutely necessary to get you where you need to go. Kathy and I have a daughter, 31, <laughs> she mouthed it to me, 31-year-old daughter, and uh, Lisa's had a lot of surgeries, and there have been surgeries we put off until the pain of not having it outweighed the pain of having it, because we love our daughter. God loves us so far beyond our human capacity to love our own children, and so he's going to guard you and you can trust him. So when you're going through things, you need to look at every heart. What does what Hebrew say? It said, consider hardship discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. You're going through a hard time, consider it's discipline from the Lord. And the discipline of the Lord, we think of discipline from a parental perspective that we're going to discipline our kids when they do wrong. No, it's more of the, the military mindset the military doesn't put their soldiers under discipline because they've been bad. They put them under discipline precisely because they see more good in them than that soldier sees in himself. And so they know the only way to draw that man or that woman out of herself is to create a disciplined environment to call that greatness out. 
And that's the type, that's the idea behind the discipline of the Lord. So if you're going through a hard time, don't waste your sorrows. Milk it, grab the udders and milk it. Get it all you can. Get a bucket full. If you're going to go through it, get something out of it. And surrender to the Lord and say, God, Lord, help me to learn something by this. Lord, I want to know you better through this hardship. Lord, this deprivation I'm going through, this, this heartbreak I'm going through, this hardship, whatever it is, Lord, I want to see you through this and teach me and milk it for all it's worth. Don't waste your sorrows. So God took Adam and Eve and he formed them in his image and they were full of potential. And then he allowed their will to be confronted because you cannot grow morally. You can never grow in character without being uh, faced with moral choices. You've got to be able to choose. And we've got to choose the higher good. And that's what creates character. And our human nature wants to take the easy route. I want, I want the goods now and I'll pay later. That's why in scripture, again and again, sin is framed as debt. Because debt is, I want the enjoyment of the purchase now and I'll pay later. And you know what? You always pay more than you intended to pay. But in scripture, God, God doesn't seduce you by some pleasure and then there's payday later on. God comes to you and says, count the cost. Here's the contract, read through, understand, don't, sign, don't commit until you've counted the cost. And we surrender to him out of trust and God grows us up into him. That, that was the plan. That's why it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, Jesus, for whom and through whom everything exists, should be made perfect through suffering. Because that's how we're going to be made perfect. So what happened? Adam and Eve, they blew it. And they derailed the plan of God. So what did Jesus do? He came on and he was, the first Adam derailed the plan, the last Adam got it back on track. He came in and as the pioneer of our salvation, forged a way back for humanity. But even Jesus in the manger was not the finished product. You understand that? It says in Hebrews chapter two, it says, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. I used to read that and think, what does that mean? That Jesus wasn't born perfect? Hebrews 5 says that Jesus was perfected by the things he suffered. I, 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 what does that mean? Years ago, I picked up a book by Oswald Chambers. He's the one that wrote My Utmost for His Highest. Great, great author. He had some tremendous revelation. And he talked about this principle, and he, he said something to this effect. The innocence of Jesus was not the innocence of our order of things. He said our innocence, well, he went on to say this. He said, innocence is nothing to be bragged about. It's never been confronted with an opportunity. I mean, it's something to be guarded when, when a child doesn't have the capacity to deal with the choice. But innocence is not something to be bragged about. He said, 
purity. Innocence has never been confronted with the opportunity. It's, it's just been shielded. But purity has been confronted, gone through the fire of temptation, and come out the other side holding to its integrity. It did the right thing. That's what God is after in our lives, purity. He's not just meaning to keep us innocent. He wants to make us pure. And so when he allowed the enemy to, to come and confront Adam and Eve, and they made the wrong choice, they fell. So what did God do? Did he say, I wash my hands of humanity? He said, no, I will have a man in my own image. And he sent Jesus, but Jesus came as an innocent child. He wasn't born perfect. In other words, he wasn't born completed. He had to, what did he say to his cousin, John the Southern Baptizer? He said, I must fulfill all of righteousness. Why? Because that was God's plan. God had a plan for man. His heart had a dream. I want to see a man that will go through everything and out of trust for me will unfold that character I put within him so I can say, if you want to know what I'm like, look at my son. And that's what, how Jesus lived. So Jesus fulfilled all of righteousness. Every time he was confronted with the temptation, he chose right. It wouldn't have been good enough had, remember when Herod tried to have Jesus killed while he was in the manger? It would not, he could not have purchased, okay, theologically, he may have been able to purchase part of your salvation, but not the fullness. One of the things we need to understand is that what we needed for salvation is not just a sinless life. I mean, that. We messed this in. God, but God desired more than innocence, sinlessness. He wanted perfection. Somebody who not only didn't do the wrong things, but someone who fulfilled all of righteousness, did all the right things. So this is not just something where we're passive. I'm just not going to sin. Not going to do anything. Not going to sin. No, God wants you to engage and do the things of the Father. Do his work. Do what you see the Father doing. Say what you hear the Father saying. Walk and unfold that character and become all that he intended you to be. That's God's plan. And so that was the objective of Jesus, even to the point where hanging on the cross, it says, he was obedient, Philippians 2, he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He had to fulfill all of righteousness, and then what did he say hanging on the cross? It is finished. What was finished? I personally believe that what was finished was God's dream for man. That God could finally say, I have a man made in my own image. He has fulfilled every purpose. He has fulfilled all of righteousness. My heart is satisfied with that man. It's such an amazing thing. Hebrews chapter 9, it says that, okay, so Jesus dies, gives his life. He resurrects. And it says that he went into the, holy, the holiest place, not by the blood of goats and bull, not by the blood of bulls and lambs, but he entered the most holy place by his own precious blood. Now you need to catch this. What he was saying is that Jesus earned the right to walk in. He could come in, he was holy. And he could step into the Father boldly and say, I'm here. 
and there could be there was nothing between them he had fulfilled all of righteousness he entered by his own righteous life that's what God was longing for. And when God had that, God could say, I'm satisfied. Rend the veil. Come in. So what does all that have to do with you and I? Well, that's the backstory. When you and I use the phrase, we enter by the blood. We come before him by the blood. I plead the blood. What do we really mean by that, by these Christian phrases? When God began to teach me about this, I was a young believer. I got saved at 18 years old. I'd been living on the streets for a couple years. Some people hear my testimony and think I was in my 30s when I got saved. I was, I was 18. I'd been an alcoholic for a number of years, living on the streets for two years, and I was a demonized young man. And when I got saved, I got saved. I mean, God, I was broken. And I knew, God, I don't want to touch my life. It's yours. You, you tell me to jump, I'm just saying, how high? You, and, and when I had authority figures in my life, they say jump, I'd say, how high? I mean, I was a broken person. I was sincere. The problem is, my sincerity was uninformed. I did not understand the gospel. When you are very sincere, but you have a misunderstanding of the gospel, you will burn up like a crispy critter in trying to please God. The enemy will leverage your own sincerity against you. Now, there are other people who, they don't understand the gospel, but they're not sincere. Their failures won't bother them. The enemy can't leverage them because they don't really care. But if you're sincere and you don't have an accurate understanding of the gospel, the enemy will use his, his primary weapon of accusation and condemnation to drive you into the ground and to cause you to just work and work to please God to purchase something you already have for free. So as a young man, I, I got saved and I went off to Bible school and I was about five years into my walk with God. I was in Bible school, and I remember just crashing and burning. I was, I was in my, my Bible school dorm room, laying on the floor for a couple hours, just weeping and saying, God, I'm done. I can't serve you. I, I can't do this thing. I don't have it in me. And I, I remember telling the Lord, this, this is an indication that I did not understand Christianity. I said, I guess I only had five years in me. Other people, I don't know how they have 20 years of Christianity in them. That was telling. And I was laying there crying, just saying, God, I can't do this thing. And I heard an audible voice say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It wasn't God, it was my, uh, my best friend had snuck in through the bathroom. <laughs> Seriously. I didn't know he was there, it freaked me out. Whoa! And I don't, it, yeah, I know I had you for there. You guys, whoa, man. Yeah. It was my friend Richard Green. Some of you may, rich pastors over in Coralville, got a great church, Life Church over there. And uh, it rocked me. But that one word began to be the foundation through which God began to build something in my life. And over the next three years, God began to teach me about the blood of Jesus. And everything I've told you this morning and everything I'm about to tell you came out of that three years. But God began to set me free. And I began to understand 
that the father is satisfied with Jesus' life. What God wanted was a perfect life. One person, a man made in his own image, a man who would cooperate with him and out of faith in his character yield to him and allow him to develop him. And he had that in Jesus. What does that have to do with the blood? Leviticus, I want to say it's chapter 16. Don't quote me. Ask Bill Culver. It, uh, but Leviticus says, the life is in the blood. That's a very, very important principle. Because the life that is in Jesus' blood is a life that has fulfilled every righteous requirement the Father ever had for man. He fulfilled all of righteousness. It's a perfected life. And so when Jesus offered that to the Father, the Father could say, I'm satisfied. I receive. He received. Jesus was not only the lamb that was slain, he was the priest who carried his own blood, the high priest. And he came not in a tent made by men, not in a holy of holies made by men, but in the, the true holy of holies in heaven, the throne room of God. And he walked in and he said, Father, I want to present to you your dream what you've longed for, a man that perfectly exemplifies you. And the father said, I am satisfied. That is why the blood of Jesus is so valuable to God. It's not a sentimentality that, oh, he's, my, he's, he's close to me, he's my boy, and that's why it makes, you know, I'm, I'm, I have an affinity for his blood. No, it's that his blood fulfilled all of righteousness. And when we really begin to understand that, it gives us confidence before God. First John, has, it says this, if your heart condemns you, you do not have confidence before God. There are a lot of believers that do not have confidence to go into the presence of God. They, they dwell on the outside, at best in the holy place, not the holy of holies. They stand on the outside as kind of a, uh, they, they feel like they're a, um, kind of a second class citizen that God, God's disappointed Jesus bought you you know and it, man Jesus every time you go out you bring back something and now I'm stuck with him you know and okay he's mine and you bought him and I'll, I'll put up with him but it's more toleration than celebration it's a lot of people have that view of God because they're so in tune with their own failures and the precise reason they're so in tune is because of their sincerity they want to please God, and they are painfully aware of their own failings and their own weaknesses. And the more sincere you are, the more susceptible you are to condemnation until you understand the blood. And so we've got to understand how the blood satisfies the Father. And when God began to teach me this, I remember I was standing, I, was, I went, went to Berean Assembly of God over on University. We were in worship, those mauve chairs, it, uh, those pink mob chairs, we were in worship, and uh, those were the days. And I was, as I was worshiping, all of a sudden I, I saw this picture, and I didn't know it was a vision. I just saw this picture of this huge gymnasium-like room, but it had this polished glass floor, and I was looking in, and it was like the floor went on forever. I couldn't see the full expanse, but I knew it was the throne room, and my heart, I wanted to go in, and I'm like, Lord, I wanna come in, but I knew I'm not worthy. I I, Lord, you don't want me in there. I, I, I'm not worthy to go in there. And the Lord called my attention to the threshold of that big, huge room, which was the throne room, and there was blood all over the threshold. And he sp simply said to me, 
You have to enter through the blood. The only way in. God loves you enough that he will never allow you to rest in your own works. Because if you have confidence to approach him based on your own works, you are living deceived. You can never be good enough. You can never earn the right. You're made good enough through the blood of Christ. During that season of my life, I would picture myself standing outside the throne and I'd want to go in and worship. And I would picture this big angel like he's the bouncer, you know, like he's carding everybody. You got what you need, buddy? And I'd, I'd, he'd say, do you have a perfect life? And I would say, no, not in of it myself. I know who I am and what I've done in the past. But I do have this. And I would pull out the blood. I have the perfect life of Jesus. I have a life that has fulfilled every righteous requirement. I present this blood to you, this life to you. And the angel would grin and say, go on in and worship. And I would go. And I had to do those mental gymnastics. I had to retrain my mind. Hebrews, there's, there's a number of passages. Let me, let me read a couple verses to you, and we're going to land this. We'll have to get into this again later, because I want to teach you how to use this against the enemy. Hebrews 10, verse 1. Yeah, if the worship team could come up here. Are you guys... If you guys could come on up, we're going to receive communion. For since the law was but a shadow, this is 10.1. For since the law was but a shadow of good things to come instead of a true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But these sacrifices, in these sacrifices, are the reminder of sin every year. He said, if you're really cleansed, you don't have the consciousness of sin. He goes on to say, Hebrews 10, verse 9. So, being cleansed erases sin consciousness. If you're living in sin consciousness, it's because you're not yet cleansed. Now, pause there. Cleanse, cleansing your heart is not the same as being forgiven. Being forgiven is the ledger in heaven. That's taken care of. The shed blood of Jesus has already been presented to the Father on your behalf. And as a born-again believer, God opens the books and says, forgiven, you're righteous. But if in your mind your heart is not cleansed, you don't take advantage of that. You've got a check you won't cash. You stand on the outside because you have a defiled identity because you've never learned to apply the blood to the doorposts of your own heart. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.